Uh, excellent. So we can we can start. Uh, hi, my name is Nick Giordano, and I'm going to be your host and representative for SADM's initiative of the Biosketch podcast series. And in today's installment, it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Kristen Mueller, who's an assistant professor in emergency medicine at Washington University at St. Louis School of Medicine. And it also served as a residency research director at Washington University for the last four years. Um, she's also a faculty scholar in the Institute of Public Health, uh, where Dr. Mueller attended medical school at the Medical College of Wisconsin and completed her emergency res residency training at Washington University School of Medicine. She completed a one-year emerging infectious disease laboratory training fellowship at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. <clears throat> Dr. Mueller is an active member of Washington University's Gun Violence Initiative and is engaged in research on firearm violence and injury prevention. Dr. Mueller is also the physician liaison to the newly launched St. Louis Area Hospital-based violence intervention program, Life Outside Violence, and was recently awarded a two-year career development grant by the Emergency Medicine Foundation in partnership with a firm to study firearm injuries and recidivism at St. Louis Level 1 trauma hospitals. Dr. Mueller? Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Um, so this podcast series was really set up as a way to try and identify potential trajectories that medical students and residents that are interested in a career in research and within emergency medicine could, could get um, ideas and expectations for what a career in EM research could look like. So with that in mind, do you mind telling us a little bit about how you got started in EM research? Absolutely. So firstly, I'll say that there's no one way or one direct pathway into emergency medicine research. And I certainly took a more circuitous route into this area. Um, so initially I had done smaller research projects earlier in my career. When I was in undergrad, I did, you know, a summer research series. Um, and then for a year between undergrad and med school, that's when I worked at the CDC doing really pretty bench heavy research, genetic sequencing on um, malaria, looking at um, anti-malarial drug resistance patterns, um, which is far away from what I do now, but it was a great experience to, um, you know, be in a new environment, learn about scientific methods, kind of be in that like really um, focused academic, scientific rigorous community, and just like have all the knowledge sharing that goes on there. Um, then I went to med school and, you know, did another summer research project um, that I continued, I think, into an elective on um, neuroblastoma in mice models. So again, totally different field. Um, and then came to WashU, where I did my emergency medicine residency training. And as part of WashU's um, emergency medicine residency, residency training, I developed a mentorship relationship with Dr. Brian Fuller, who was on faculty at, well, he's still on faculty, um, and worked with him on a project around antimicrobial drug resistance and specifically trying to get folks to have more mindful stewardship and um, be mindful in the way that we're using vancomycin in patients and specifically try and get folks to only use vancomycin if the patient's going to get at least three or four doses. So you get to a therapeutic level, that little blurb for <laughs> antibiotic stewardship, but this is all so far away from my current work in gun violence prevention. Um, so when I became a junior faculty member, I actually was working full-time clinically because um, academic medicine is a really wide field. I hadn't felt like I had really 
um, settled into a niche yet. And while I'd had these research experiences, um, they had certainly provided a solid foundation in research principles, but none of them had like launched me into a hard research career. And at the time when I was a junior faculty member, that wasn't something that I necessarily even wanted for myself because, you know, when you're just getting out of residency, the world is your oyster and there's a lot of different things to try. Um, so I kind of had my nose to the grindstone for a couple of years, saw a lot of patients, got really comfortable in my practice. Um, and then in my second year of being on faculty, Washington University launched the gun violence initiative. And that was really a pivotal moment in changing my career trajectory. So as part of the WashU gun violence initiative, um, the chancellor for the university brought together scholars from across disciplines. Uh, so certain medicine, public health, social work, but also the arts and humanities. And this brought it into a bigger conversation with the community as well. And living in St. Louis and, you know, working in St. Louis for many years, gun violence um, and certainly firearm injury, the impact of firearm injuries in our patient population is an everyday occurrence in the emergency department. So we take care of an average of two people who've been shot a day, every day, sometimes more, occasionally less. Um, but it's, it's a pervasive issue here. So I'd been taking care of these folks for years. I had been kind of in the weeds in their medical care. And it was, I mean, disheartening to see that many people getting shot all the time, for sure. And with this um, gun violence initiative, it was really exciting to be able to work across all these disciplines and try and think about more systematic ways to curb the effects of gun violence in our communities and think about what we could be doing in the hospital specifically, or what was our realm of influence as doctors. And out of this, we developed the Life Outside Violence Program, which is a region-wide hospital-based violence intervention program. Um, there's lots of those all over the country. Ours is unique because it involves both Washington University and St. Louis but also St. Louis University, which was traditionally one of our competitors, but doing the exact same work we're doing for the violently injured patient population. So we developed a partnership between one of our universities or between our universities, excuse me, and our four level one trauma hospitals, both adult and pediatrics. So that's Barnes, Children's, Cardinal Glennon and SLU Hospital. And like really have been working to break down barriers to improve medical care for these patients. So, I mean, emergency medicine is a team-based sport and this felt like a natural <laughs> evolution of the work that we're doing. And kind of through being involved in this program is how I started to pivot into a research career as an attending physician. Excellent. Well, thank you, thank you. Uh, that's quite a, quite a story, quite an evolution, um, <laughs> you know, all the way from translational research to, you know, gun violence prevention. Um, you know, thinking retrospectively about your career and, and looking back, do you think the mentorship that you sought out and participated in was more opportunistic in nature or was it more interest-driven? I guess what I mean by that is, at the time, were you interested in looking at those genomic sequences and mm -hmm. mice models, or was it, you know, you, you um, had the opportunity to participate in, participate in it and wanted to pursue that type of research? So a combination, for sure. I think early in my career, much more opportunistic with some choices, if that makes sense. So when you're a student, um, you might have a professor or a physician mentor, somebody who you work with, who you like working with, and you have some shared interests, and they have a research agenda that you can jump onto. 
So that's what happened um, with Dr. Fuller. Um, I have certainly been passionate about antimicrobial drug resistance ever since my time at the CDC, um, which was, I would say that was still a mix. So opportunistic in terms of <laughs> my year public health fellowship between um, undergrad and med school it involved a match process, not dissimilar from residency match. So I was very excited to get placed at the CDC working on this project was my top choice at the time, but I could have just as easily been placed in a state level public health laboratory, um, which would have been a very different experience and less research focused. So I do think the opportunity and kind of, you know, <laughs> the cosmos coming together, if you will, helped launch me on this trajectory, because I do think that foundational experience early on provided a lot of the research skills that, and um, honestly, like public health perspectives that I rely on now. Um, and then later in residency, um, Dr. Fuller is an awesome attending to work with. He had a very robust research agenda and he gave me a lot of freedom to um, explore some of the data that he had been collecting um, under my own study design and my own clinical query, which was great and really helped build my skills. But I would say it's much more since I've been an attending physician that I've really been driving my own research agenda. Um, it's not to say that you can't do that earlier on, but I think I needed to try a lot of different things. Um, maybe it's because emergency medicine, again, is a mix of a little bit of everything to know kind of where I wanted to go and put my focus in the long term. Because having a research career is a lot of work. <laughs> it's not a shock, um, but it's very different from clinical work where you show up, you do your shift, you're on for the time when you're on your shift, and then you go home and then it's your time. Whereas a research career is a little bit more lifestyle wise, um, in some ways like it is being a student where there's always a little bit more work that you could be doing, but the trade-off is I get to sleep at night more often. <laughs> um, so it's, it's got pluses and minuses for sure. Um, but in the bigger picture, the work that I'm doing is very satisfying because I believe in the mission. And I do believe that the work we're doing is going to decrease the number of people dying preventative deaths from guns. And that's a big thing to work for. And that really helps keep me centered in this work. So I went all over on that. Did I even answer your question? <laughs> definitely. Definitely. And, and, and one follow-up question from that, do you think, because I, I know you mentioned that you spent a year, um, once you became an attending, really focusing on your clinical mm -hmm. clinical work. Do you think that that year was pivotal driving your interest into your current research topic? Um, um, I do. I So I spent one year full-time clinical, and then I was still working very heavily clinically for my first three or four years um, because it takes a while to accumulate buy-down in an academic environment, which is you know, getting the grant funding, getting the departmental support, which offloads your clinical load. So you have time to do um, academic pursuits. Um, but I, I do think so, because it helped me, um, again, kind of feel centered as an attending physician, kind of get my feet under me. Um, and it helped me um, also realize that I wanted to be doing more than just the straight clinical work, because I was seeing all these problems that were bigger than just you know, the care that I provide, provide in the emergency department. Um, so the gun violence initiative launched at a time that was very in line with my desire to be doing more and has been an excellent um, way to focus this work. Um, but kind of in line with this, um, our residency was going through a bunch of evolution around the same time as I was starting to look for more academic pursuits. And I was given a project at the time, which was called follow-up conference, which the residents, you know, would just 
follow up some patient encounters. Sometimes it'd be a research project. Sometimes it'd be a case study. And there wasn't a lot of guidance or structure to that. Um, and I really had the freedom to mold this into a more functional rotation um, and have some really nice academic projects. So over the next several years, I started working with the residents in a more directed manner. We got to the point where each resident is now able to design their own project, to do the IRB, complete the study, present their findings at our resident conference, write an abstract. And for many of our residents go to a regional or national meeting. So that was like really good for me to um, kind of have that educational component. And I developed a lot more skills supervising this many projects because the most of the methods had similarities. Um, I mean, a lot of our studies were either retrospective, observational cohorts, cross-sectional or survey studies. Um, but when you do them for a bunch of different topics, you get like really used to the infrastructure <laughs> of research, if that makes sense. Um, and helped me learn kind of how to be a mentor and then what to look for in mentors myself, if that makes sense. So it was a really positive experience. Excellent. Excellent. I'm glad to hear that. And, and um, now that you're, you know, we're touching base upon what your current research is, do you mind elaborating a little bit more on that, uh, what, what you're working on now? Absolutely. So it um, is gone, just like everything, um, had some kind of pathfinding as I went along. So currently I do most of my work on violence prevention in the violently injured patient population. So as part of our Life Outside Violence, hospital-based violence intervention program, we've developed a database of all firearm injury patients or all assault patients really, who've come to one of our four level one trauma hospitals. So in the state of Missouri, we don't have um, any publicly accessible state level databases for non-lethal firearm injuries. Um, and certainly not for assaults, you know, like stabbings or fist fights, other kinds of blunt assaults. And um, the work that I'm doing right now is to clean this database because it's a very <laughs> new data source um, and something that we've really been hoping to have for a long time. Um, and then um, my EMF funded work is to identify our firearm injury rates because it's so crazy to me. Um, with how big of a problem gun violence is in this country, but we still don't even know the whole scope of the problem in terms of how many people are getting shot and how many people are getting shot multiple times. So we're getting very close to identifying that data. Um, and then we're going to create a predictive risk model for firearm injury recidivism. So these are doing a better job of identifying the folks who are most at risk for a repeat injury. So we can preferentially provide them with services um, like enrollment into the Life Outside Violence Program. Um, to improve their healing and safety. Um, so that's exciting. And then we've got all sorts of layers of program evaluation that we're just getting into now. Our Life Outside Violence program is just at the end of its three-year pilot period, and we're transitioning to what our long-term program will look like. So that's all really exciting. Um, but while we were getting all this infrastructure off the ground, because it's, as you can imagine, it takes a long time to get four hospitals, two universities, and all their associated folks in line, get data sharing agreements done, um, get everything together. Um, I did some projects on counseling on access to legal means and suicide prevention, which is kind of the other face of um, firearm injuries in this country. Um, certainly we see a lot about mass shootings and interpersonal shootings in the news, but suicide is the number one way folks die from guns across the board. Um, so that was a really good way to get more experience with research um, and identify um, 
really bring up some of my residents behind me. I had a couple of residents I worked with who did great work on this. Dr. Sonia Naganathan, who's now in Texas, and Dr. Heather Deanda, who's still with us here at WashU. Um, but with the suicide projects, we did a retrospective um, observational cohort study, just seeing how often we were, as physicians, documenting firearm access in our suicidal patients. Spoiler alert, not often. <laughs> uh, maybe you are asking, but we're not putting it in the EMR. Um, and then we launched a prospective quality improvement study, um, which was um, focused on um, improving um, counseling on access to lethal means at the bedside. So are we actually talking to our suicidal patients about safe storage of guns? Um, we developed some partnerships to be able to give them gun locks, have better follow-up. Um, and that was, I know it was a great experience. And it felt very separate at the time from the work that I'm doing and the violence prevention side. But I developed all of these skills that were super useful um, and learned how to develop community partnerships, which is actually incredibly key for the next steps in the research that I'm planning. Um, so I would take that to say, even if you feel like a project isn't in line with your long-term interest, give it a go if the timing is right, um, because there, you're going to learn something useful that may surprise you when it can be helpful later. Can you elaborate? That's really interesting. Can you elaborate a little bit more on those relationships that you built with community partners? How did that get started? And what does that currently look like now? How has that progressed your research? Yeah, for sure. So as part of the gun violence initiative, we developed a partnership with the United Way of St. Louis. And through that, um, a organization called the Violence Prevention Commission or VPC. And VPC um, is kind of the community counterpart to what we do with the WashU Gun Violence Initiative. So with VPC, it is an organization of government leaders, um, folks from the mayor's office, from police, from the FBI, um, community organizations on the ground who are doing violence prevention work or mental health counseling, schools, hospitals, kind of like the whole breadth of folks who may have, you know, a hand to the game for violence prevention. Um, and through that, I was able to make a couple connections and collaborations. Um, so one was with an organization called Women's Voices Raised for Social Justice. This is a community group in St. Louis that was able to provide us with free gun locks through um, their partnership with Lock It for Love. So anytime we need to give out gun locks in the emergency department, they just bring a box over. <laughs> it sits there and when it runs out, we get another box from them. It's been wonderful and easy. Um, so that's been great and you know has the potential to really benefit our patients. Um, and then a second partnership was with um, Provident Behavioral Health, which is a private counseling group in St. Louis that has a suicide crisis line. And when we were doing the prospective counseling and access to legal means project, we developed a partnership with them where if any of our patients on our follow-up calls were still expressing suicidal ideation, we could do a warm handoff to them and they would kind of coordinate their outpatient care and mental health crises and send it back to the ER if that's what's needed, but get them into clinic if that was also what was needed. <laughs> um, so, you know, just um, kind of carrying the scope of care beyond the acute ED encounter, which has been satisfying because we don't really think about ourselves as preventative medicine specialists, but we are, <laughs> and we're um, the point of um, medical care access for so many folks in this country that, I find it very satisfying to be providing them with the highest quality of care that we can. And I think these initiatives and partnerships are one step to being able to kind of up our game in medical care, if that makes sense. Definitely. And I think, you know, one thing that's always uh, tricky with research is pursuing grant funding. 
And I think mm -hmm. com community partnerships is a really interesting modality to, to try and execute on the research interests that you have for research initiatives without any, any funding source through these community partnerships. You can mm -hmm. still execute and, and make an impact. Um, yes, um, and I should have mentioned, so the Counseling on Access to Legal Means, that was funded by the Barnes-Jewish Hospital Foundation and the Washington University Institute for Public Health, um, and that grant funding was used um, primarily to fund the uh, research coordinators who were helped facilitating the work on the ground in the emergency department, but we did have some grant funding to assist with that project um, from like a programmatic standpoint. Excellent, and, and while we're on the topic. Um, can you tell us what your current grant funding status is and what, what current applications you're working on? Absolutely. So grant funding is really an up and down roller coaster in the research world, no doubt about it. Um, so initially when I was kind of transitioning from full-time clinical to becoming a physician researcher, it's kind of like getting little pieces here and there. So when we launched the um, Life Outside Violence program, I'm the physician liaison to that program. And as part of that, I got a 0.1 FTE. Um, so that bought down you know, 0.1 of my clinical hours to have more time to devote to the love program. Um, as part of I'm trying to remember. I actually, I think I probably had an, a small FTE portion coming off of um, those grants through the Institute for Public Health and the Barnes Jewish Hospital Foundation, although I honestly can't remember for sure anymore. Um, I had a couple of failed grant applications along the way. The National Council for Gun Violence Reduction, NCGVR, had a grant a few years ago that would have given a lot of programmatic funds to some of the firearm injury prevention work that we're doing, um, which I made it past the letter of intent stage, but not the full application. So I believe in talking about both the successes and the failures because um, my department chair keeps telling us <laughs> that for every grant you get, you've had 20 that have failed to get you to that point. Um, but I really do view the grants that weren't successful as very valuable learning experiences because um, I really came from a place of no grantmanship. A couple of years ago, I went back and looked at some of those early grants I wrote to the Barnes Jewish Hospital Foundation. And I'm like, oh, I don't even have Ames in here. Like, how did this get funded? <laughs> um, but it's good to like get your feet wet with, with your institutional grants because they tend to be the lower hanging fruit that can help you build up the skills you need to get the bigger ones. Um, one of my big turning points was when I was awarded the Emergency Medicine Foundation or EMF and Affirm um, Career Development Grant. Affirm is the American... Firearm Injury Reduction in Medicine organization, which just merged with the Aspen Institute a couple of weeks ago. So they're having their own evolution right now. Um, but this, I was awarded that grant in 2018 and I'm in a no cost extension period right now because of COVID, um, which, you know, being an EM physician and researcher during COVID, everything got slowed up a little bit. Um, but that was really pivotal because it um, brought me down to close to half-time clinical, half-time research, which gave me much more time than I've had at any other point in my career to really focus on research. I was able to take a few classes in research skills like statistics, which I made it to being attending with never taking a statistics class in my entire life. <laughs> you too can live this dream. Um, but now these are skills that I need to at least have a working knowledge of. Um, and epidemiology is some other research methods. Um, classes. So, you know, like kind of filling out my foundation a little bit and having more time to dedicate to these projects to help really like getting the infrastructure in motion. Um, and now we're getting to the part 
um, where we're going to hopefully, fingers crossed, a lot of this research output is going to be coming real quick <laughs> over the next six to 12 months. Um, and kind of as my next step, I am in the application process for a K-23, which is a five-year career development grant, usually for early career physicians. I'm a little bit old for this process um, because of the path that I've taken. I'm in my seventh year of being an attending. Um, I think more traditionally people are applying for these probably three or four years out of residency, um, but depends on who you are. Um, but the work's important. I'm motivated. So hoping for good things. Um, and I did my first round of um, K-23 submission last winter in the February cycle. And this is a grant that goes to the NIH. And it was my first application to the NIH um, and was not funded, but which is very rare. I think only like 10% of people get funded in these grants on their first try. Um, but my feedback was workable. So I'm spending this year kind of addressing some of the deficiencies um, that were recognized by the reviewers and hoping to get a new application back to them um, in this winter. So we'll see what happens. Excellent. Well, definitely we'll uh, be keeping your fingers fingers crossed yeah. for you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, and looking back, what what advice do you have for medical students that are actively interested in pursuing a career in research? Is there anything that you wish that you would have done differently? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing is aligning your mentorship early. I've certainly had a lot of different mentors over the years, um, but that was one thing that took me a while to get in line as an attending as I've transitioned to this firearm injury prevention research because there's very few senior mentors in this area. Um, and accepting that or recognizing that the mentors don't necessarily have to be 100% focused on the same thing you're doing to give you excellent advice. Um, so my mentors right now are a mix of public health workers and physicians kind of across the spectrum. Like my primary mentor is a PhD epidemiologist. Um, my secondary mentor is an HIV specialist who focuses on dissemination implementation research. Uh, I've got um, a PhD social worker who focuses on qualitative mentors. I've got a statistician. Um, I've got Dr. Megan Rainey, um, who is a content-specific expert from Brown University, um, who kind of like helps bring the EM perspective and the firearm injury prevention perspective into this. Um, but just bringing, and oh, and Dr. Veda Sanders-Thompson, who is um, focused on community health participatory research in St. Louis, which is going to be my next step um, with this K grant. Um, so just kind of knowing that it's not going to be any one person necessarily who's going to meet all of your mentorship needs and that it's okay to take a team approach or go to multiple people for advice and guidance. And the other thing I'd say to students, especially when you're early on in the student level, is just try a lot of things and be open to opportunities because you really just don't know where it'll carry you. Um, and even if you're writing it, you know, doing a project that you know is not going to align with your long-term career goals, you can still learn really valuable research skills. You can, you know, learn how to design a study, do the conduct of research, write a paper, <laughs> which will help you later on. Um, so you did even like going to meetings, going to doing the abstract presentations. I mean, that's all really valuable experience to getting your feet wet in this field. Um, and I very much value all of the times when I had done smaller projects, because I do think they feed into the work that I'm doing now. Uh, excellent. And, and how, how would you recommend medical students prioritize research in their early careers? Um, I know you mentioned that you did summer research activities. Um, do you, do you advocate for that or would you, you know, did you pursue research during the academic year? 
Um, mm-hmm. What do you recommend? So it's kind of a mix. And I believe that the structure of med student curriculum has changed quite a bit uh, at many institutions since I was a student. So I had the traditional two years of classroom time, two years of rotations. And I know at least at Washington University, we're switching that up. So kind of the um, classroom-based learning happens across all four years, but the clinical experiences also start much earlier. So I would encourage you to find out if there's a dean of research in your medical school. I think that's a good first person for contact or um, to contact and um, kind of see what the opportunities are. A lot of times a dean of research will have a list of faculty who are willing to work with students or looking to work with students, some of their ongoing projects. Um, And you can then join in an ongoing project. I think for most med students, unless you're an MSTP or something like that, you're gonna have a really hard time designing your own project in your brain, like your own self-guided research field (laughs) and completing that from start to finish. I would strongly encourage you, you know, with your learning and clinical demands aside that are your primary focus to um, work on a project that's already ongoing where you've got some mentorship from a faculty member who can take care of a lot of the logistics, which you should get experience with, but don't necessarily need to be the primary driver of when you're also learning how to be a doctor. Um, So I'd say that. Um, And certainly if you um, get into medical research, it doesn't have to be just the actual conduct of research. That's the only part of the experience. The mentorship piece is extremely valuable and getting to go to you know, lectures that your um, faculty mentor might be giving or that their department's giving, um, potentially going to meetings um, kind of on the coattails of the work that you're doing is another really valuable way to network and learn more about the field. So a lot of a lot of good options coming out of med student research. Excellent. And on the subject of mentorship versus authorship, how do you mm-hmm. how do you think that, you know, students should weigh that? Yeah, I think as a student, it's always amazing and great if you can get a publication out, but I think mentorship is still probably more important, but good mentors are going to pull, if you're doing the work, they're going to pull you along too. So they kind of go hand in hand. Um, But approaching a project just to be like, I want to be the author on it is a tricky way (laughs) to get into the work and could ruffle some feathers. And honestly, isn't necessarily going to advance your research agenda in the way that you want. The work that is meaningful will get published. And if you're the person doing the work, you're going to be brought along with that. Um, so I would say mentorship first as the stepping stone. And with you know the advent of social distancing and, and the pandemic, a lot of virtual research opportunities have been, mm-hmm. been offered. Uh, what's, what's your viewpoint on that uh, in, in you know, a medical student's or resident's career? Uh, it's opened up a lot more opportunities to participate and make collaborations that might not have existed before, but uh, how do you think that weighs in with physical in-person research opportunities? Um, I think it's great. I don't know. So from my perspective, most of my research through the Life Outside Violence program and um, the Institute for Public Health, which runs it, um, is already virtual. So I was one of the rare folks who was on Zoom a year before COVID started. <laughs> Um, just because it was a very effective platform to meet across universities. Um, and even our, I don't know, most medical campuses are huge. I'm like five buildings away from a bunch of my mentors. So we can get on Zoom between our meetings or we can walk 15 minutes to find each other, um, which we did that too. Um, but a lot of research can be conducted virtually, especially medical student research. Um, so when you learn about studies 
you know, everybody always highlights the double-blinded randomized control trial as the gold standard of research. And everybody wants to do a double-blinded randomized control trial. But that is like the tip of the pyramid in terms of the type of research studies that are going to be done. And most studies at the resident level are going to be, or excuse me, at this resident level, but also the student level, are going to be chart review in some nature, or maybe surveys, um, because you're still building your skills. So you're not ready to do that big study, but you are ready to learn how to collect baseline data to know what the next step is. And a lot of that can be done very effectively remotely. And with the bonus, if you're doing it at home, you can have your pets sit on your lap. Maybe that's my personal <laughs> bias, <laughs> but why not do research without the dog sitting next to you? Sounds like a win-win situation to me. Uh, <laughs> and. Um, you know, aside from taking the statistics course, uh, how do you think medical students can best prepare themselves for a career in research? Mm -hmm. um, so again, I think trying lots of things, um, just being open to opportunities as they come up. And if there's like, this is all super vague, but if there's something that you want to do, believe that you can do it. Um, so this is for the women and maybe the, some of the underrepresented minorities in the audience, but one of like the most influential little tidbits I ever heard at a lecture was that, and nothing against the white men who are going to take a hit in this story, but um, most um, most men, when they want to do something, if they feel 60% confident that they can get the project done, they'll volunteer for it. Whereas most women um, want to feel 98% confident they can complete a project effectively before they'll volunteer for it. And when I heard that, I'm like, oh, I'm 60% confident I can do a lot of different things. And I've kind of just run with that mentality and it's really opened a lot of doors because the work is really done by people who show up. Um, so just physically being present or virtually being present in the times of COVID does make a big difference. And if you're there and you're consistent and you're reliable, people are going to turn to you and provide you with more opportunities. Excellent. I think that's really great advice. And is there any particular community or organization um, that you might recommend? I, I know that SAM has uh, mm -hmm. a, a group dedicated specifically for, for women uh, that, you know, for maybe the medical student out there who's interested in getting started in research but is intimidated, um, do you know of any organizations that they might be able to join uh, that might, you know, they can just kind of dip their feet in a little bit and mm -hmm. uh, get a little bit of exposure? Yeah, I mean, most professional societies will have a med student chapter. So SAM is a great option. And especially if you're doing smaller projects when you're a med student or maybe early on as a resident, there's a lot of regional meetings for SAM that are still a great way to present your research, be a part of the academic medical community, but not necessarily have the high scientific rigor bar that you might have for the full national SAM meeting, um, but still meet a lot of folks and um share your work in a meaningful fashion. So I would encourage the regional meetings. They're also usually closer to where you live and cheaper, which is an advantage when you're a med student. Um, so those are great options. Um, I've been involved with AMLA, which is the American Medical Women's Association. They have a med student chapter. I know most of our subspecialty groups um, like NAEMSP, which is for the EMS folks, the Society of Critical Care Medicine um, are great for bringing along med student resident projects to their meetings. Um, so that would be um, something to ask your mentors about. Usually um, lo your local institution will have different med student interest groups as well um, that you can explore. So there's a lot of different avenues. I'm of the mindset that there's no wrong answer 
in ways to get into research or ways to um, kind of engage with different organizations because you're going to learn something from every experience. Um, even if the thing you learn is like, ooh, this group was not for me, um, that's still valuable and it helps direct you towards what needs to come next. Well, Dr. Mueller, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate you uh, walking us through your career and giving us advice as to you know, how, how to pursue a career in research. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. pleasure. Thank you so much for having me and good luck to everybody out there. I'm excited to hear about all your work. Thank you. And thanks for tuning in, everyone. Take care and have a good day.